Please turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 5. We are making our way through the Gospel of Matthew, and most presently we're working through the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5 through 7. This wonderful sermon from our Lord. And this will be our fourth and final sermon in this section on on marriage, lust, and adultery, and remarriage, and divorce. And so uh, I'm going to read the text for the last few sermons up till now. So this is Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 to 32. Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 to 32. This is the word of the Lord. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Let's pray together briefly. Heavenly Father, as we come to the end of these weeks on this particular series of verses, I do pray that you would help us to, to bring together some loose ends and to kind of receive the general thrust of what is being said here, that we would all have hearts that are submissive to your word and delight in your word, delight to obey your word and see freedom in walking in the way of your commandments, as counterintuitive as that may be to the world. So God, I pray that you would give us freedom from past failure and a great uh, desire for holiness today, and help us to pursue Christ from a true and pure heart. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last Sunday, if you're here, we talked about um, eight, really eight points about the topic of divorce and remarriage. And I'm going to just kind of get this all in our minds. I'm going to review them just briefly, walk through these points from last week. Just so we have them clearly in our mind, I don't know about you, it's easy to forget or not understand what was said. And so, again, I'm relying heavily on Kevin DeYoung for these points, and here they are. Number one, marriage is intended by God to be a lifelong commitment. Marriage is intended by God to be a lifelong commitment. Jesus said, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. This is the intention of God, that it be a covenant union between a husband and a wife until death do us part. Number two, remarriage is permitted but not required after the death of a spouse. Remarriage is permitted but not required after the death of a spouse. That may seem obvious, but just to make it clear, 1 Corinthians seven thirty nine: a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Number three, all divorce happens because of sin, but not all divorce is sinful. All divorce happens because of sin. If a marriage ends in divorce, there had to be some sin that preceded that, but not all divorces are sinful. And you may remember what Jesus said in Matthew 19, verse 8, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. 
Behind all divorce, there is some kind of sinful hardness of heart, even if not every divorce is itself sinful. And I mentioned 12 unbiblical reasons to pursue divorce. I'm just going to mention a few of them briefly, really briefly. These are unbiblical reasons that people pursue divorce. Number one, I got married too young. Number two, I don't feel love for my spouse anymore. Number three, my spouse doesn't show enough affection toward me. Number four, I am not happy anymore in this marriage. Number five, my spouse is not even a Christian. Surely God would want me to get out. Well, 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7 addresses that as well as 1 Corinthians 7. Number six, our marriage is extremely difficult. I am running out of emotional fuel to keep going and loving and forgiving my spouse. Number seven, my friends, I've talked to them. They've counseled me. My friends tell me I need to get out of this marriage, but they don't offer biblical reasons. Number eight, I prayed about it, and I have a peace about leaving this marriage. Number nine, even if it is wrong to get this divorce, God will forgive me this one sin because God is gracious. If you ever hear in your own mind or you ever hear a friend or anyone you know saying these kinds of things, all the red flags should be on alert and you should love them enough to speak frankly in the right context to talk to them and say, listen, we need to see what Scripture actually teaches on this issue. I will just tell you, today in our world, we tend to run our lives not based On careful exegesis and interpretation of Scripture, we tend to run our lives based on human intuition. I just have a sense that this wouldn't be God's will for me, or I have a sense that this is the right thing for me to make me happier, better, whatever it is. Uh, And and so I'm telling you, our intuition is not should not be our guide. Careful understanding of all of what Scripture teaches on a particular issue, that should be what guides us. And so be very, be very aware of the temptation to let our intuitions determine what we believe and how we act. So back to the main list of points from last week. Point number four, divorce and remarriage are permitted but not required for sexual immorality. We'll talk more about this point in a few minutes. Divorce and remarriage are permitted but not required for sexual immorality. Number five, Divorce and remarriage are permitted when a believing spouse is deserted by an unbelieving spouse. Divorce and remarriage are permitted when a believing spouse is deserted by an unbelieving spouse. Number six, biblically unlawful divorce, this is important, biblically unlawful divorce followed by remarriage is adultery, according to Jesus in the initial sexual act of the new marriage. So, one more time, biblically unlawful divorce followed by remarriage is adultery initially in the first sexual act of the new marriage, and both marriage partners are guilty of committing adultery against the unlawfully divorced spouse's previous spouse. Jesus clearly teaches that in the Gospels. Number seven, biblically permissible divorce, so that's when the Bible permits it, when the Bible says it is lawful to get this divorce. Biblically permissible divorce allows for remarriage. If, if, the, if Scripture says you are allowed to get a divorce in this particular situation, I believe it also teaches that you're allowed to get remarried to a believer uh, if, that is, if that is true of you. Number eight, this is the longer one, improperly divorced and remarried Christians. So what about people who failed already? I got an unlawful divorce. I got remarried as I shouldn't have. That initial remarriage started in adultery. Now what do I do? 
And the answer is, improperly divorced and remarried Christians should stay as they are in whatever new relationship they're in, if they're married in those new relationships. Improperly divorced and remarried Christians should stay as they are, but repent and be forgiven of their past sins and make whatever amends are necessary. And please understand that God can bring great good out of very broken and even sinful scenarios like that. And you say, I've already made the mistakes. There's no going back. I've made those mistakes. I hate what I did. If I could go back, I wouldn't have done what I did. I repent before the Lord. I confess this sin. I made a past mistake. I should not have gotten that divorce. I should not have gotten the following remarriage, but now I have. It's already happened. It happened 10 years ago, 20 years ago. What do I do now? The answer is repent of the past failure, and then the Lord can greatly bless that current marriage. The Lord can greatly use you in that current marriage. Be faithful to that new spouse. And, and as Paul would say, forget what's behind and press on toward what's ahead. Don't be bogged down. And this is so important on this topic. It is so easy to be bogged down by past failure that we end up being stunted in our growth in the present. That is not what God wants. God wants us to admit and confess and repent of past failure, but then we make the most of what we have right in front of us, and we do not allow past failure to ultimately leave us paralyzed by guilt or condemnation. Now, again, marriage, a few weeks ago I said marriage was given for three reasons. Remember what they are? They're companionship, procreation, and illustration. And I just want to say something about those points again before we move on from this topic. Companionship. It is not good for the man to be alone. I will, make her a help, I will make him a helper suitable for him. If you are in a marriage, you should seek to strengthen this companionship with your spouse regularly, building healthy habits that maintain and strengthen that relationship. Listen, it is not that hard for married couples who've been married maybe even a lot longer than I have and we have made way more experience with marriage than I do personally, but it is not hard to get into a rut in a marriage where suddenly you realize that everything you do in your interactions with your spouse is merely perfunctory. It's about getting the kids to soccer practice. It's about getting to work. It's about getting this and that done and making sure the finances are taken care of. Suddenly, 95%, 99% of the marriage becomes perfunctory duties that you have to do. And it, before long, the inner life of the marriage can start to become hollowed out. And suddenly, it's like you're just two roommates living almost two different lives under the same ceiling and there's not a lot really of, 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 of genuine emotional intimacy. Is the inner life of my own known by my wife? Is her inner life known by me? Is there continual communication and upkeep of the relationship? It takes work, and it is glorious work, and it can be difficult work, but it is absolutely worth it in the end to upkeep that relationship and to keep that companionship and that friendship and that love and affection strong. Number two is procreation and I haven't read these or made these points sooner. I want to make them now. Psalm 127. You know these verses, verses 3 to 5. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate." And just this morning, Desiring God had an article about this, and so I couldn't help but read it, and now it's in my sermon, okay? So that took a few hours, and it's in the sermon. So it was, the article's called the messy, home, uh, the messy Home of Blessing, Why Children Are Worth the Chaos. And I just have to, this was just too good to leave out of the sermon today. There are three lies that we, we can tend to believe about having children. Just listen to these. I'm going to read from this article. Number one, does parenting feel trivial? 
This may be the loudest lie about children in our society. There are so many bigger, more productive, more important things you could be doing right now than raising kids. This is the lie. Parenting is too small for you. Changing the diapers, doing all these little things all day, cleaning up the messes. Is that really worth your life? Number two, does parenting feel futile? Maybe parenting doesn't feel small at all. Maybe it feels big and overwhelming and at times demoralizing. She's still not potty trained. He still won't sit still. She throws her food on the ground nearly every meal. He throws a fit whenever mom says no. They still can't play together for three minutes without fighting. Anyone in the room can identify with this? Uh, this could have been taken from my, our house any day this week. Uh, then, it, then the article says this, is anything I'm doing making a difference? Am I doing more harm than good? Is all this effort just a colossal failure? Lie number three, does parenting feel unrewarding? Parenting can feel at times like all cross and no reward. Our sin says, what am I getting out of all this work and sacrifice and dirty laundry? Which may be the worst of it all. <laughs> it's hard. All this dirty laundry, what do I have to show for all that I have given, all the effort I've put in? And then the, the, the writer of the article responds by saying this, we miss the reward in raising children when we start looking for the reward somewhere other than children. We want efficiency. We want accomplishment. We want a salary. We want recognition. Instead, God gives us eternal souls to steward and shepherd. Eternal souls to steward and shepherd. He doesn't reward us according to the desires of our fallen, misguided, restless, earthly hearts. God rewards us according to reality. While millions are feverishly building towers that will crumble and fall in a generation, the wise are receiving and raising souls who will live forever. Now, listen to this. When your career has come to a close, would you trade any amount of success or fame for even just one of those souls? The reward may seem small when you're drowning in bottles and diapers, but like our babies, it won't seem small for long. And along that point, back in 2006, Vodi Bauckham was preaching on the topic of marriage. It's a great series, what he must be, what she must be. And in that series, he said something that I'm sure I've said it here in the past, but it's, it lodged so deeply into my mind, I've never forgotten it. It actually changed how I thought about children as a person who wasn't necessarily wanting to have a lot of children when, when I was about to get married. And Vody said this, and I've checked up on this a little bit over the years, and he seems to have been predicting the future quite accurately. He said, uh, North African Muslims have been migrating at an unusual rate to France. And he said what was happening was, in France, the population rate is, you know, less than replacement rate, right? So the average couple's having less than two children per family. It's like one point whatever, you know, kids per family. And the average Muslim family migrating up into France is having, I think he said, six children per family, which sounds about right. So he said, newsflash, France will be a Muslim country in two generations by birth rate alone. That changed how I thought about kids probably for the rest of my life, that illustration. Because Vody said, absolutely, we should evangelize, we should reach the lost, we should share the gospel with unbelievers, we should grow that way. But there is one massive way that God has given us to grow His kingdom in this world. It's by having children and raising them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, training them to have a moral conscience, disciplining them when they fail, showing them the goodness of the gospel when sin happens, and confessing sin as a broken, sinful parent like I am to my children when I don't measure up, and showing how great and good Jesus is, and training them from the youngest years the truth and goodness of Scripture. My goodness, 
if Christians, and not everyone is going to be able to do this, I am not going to give false guilt to anyone. But think about the future of Christians who have many children, raise them up in Christ in the local church, and see many of those children come to trust Christ. Think about the impact that can be had in our surrounding culture in one generation, in two generations, as Vodi would say, even by birth rate alone. And point number three about marriage, so it was companionship, procreation, and illustration. It is ultimately about showing Christ's covenant-keeping faithfulness to His bride, the church. Let me read some stuff I have not read. Malachi 2, you don't have to turn to this. Listen to this, though. Malachi 2, 14 and following. The Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless. Though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, did He not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of of your youth. And I know there's a translation debate, but the very next verse is God hates divorce. There's a debate about how to translate that verse, but that is the following verse. How about this? Proverbs 2, 16. So you will be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words, who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God, for she, for her house sinks down to death and her path to the departed. None who go to her come back nor do they regain the paths of life. So that's drawing together all that we've been talking about the last few weeks. I hope you see marriage is a good thing. It is blessed by God. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. The, the, the culture downplays lifelong commitment in marriage, lifelong fidelity, lifelong faithfulness. But you know people in your life who have lived that way. Is it not glorious? Is it not a glorious thing when for half a century a couple has been faithful to one another and God has blessed that marriage? And what a testimony it is to the gospel of Christ. Now, for this sermon, I want to zero in on two points that we've discussed at some length, and I want to expand a little bit on what I've already said. Do you guys remember the Westminster Confession of Faith? Okay, going back to 1646, and we wouldn't agree with every single thing written in the Westminster Confession of Faith, but it is one of the great confession or creeds of, of church history. And in that confession, there is this wonderful section here, uh, wonderful as in it, I think it's truthful, and it's saying what we've been trying to say here about divorce and remarriage. Listen from 1646 to what I hope I said last Sunday about divorce and remarriage. Here's what the Westminster Confession of Faith says, quote, in the case of adultery after marriage, it is lawful, it is lawful for the innocent party to sue out a divorce and after the divorce to marry another as if the offending party were dead. Although the corruption of man be such as is apt to study arguments unduly to put asunder those whom God hath joined together in marriage, don't you love how the Puritans would write? What did that mean? What, he, what they mean is, we multiply sinful arguments for why to justify unlawful divorce. We come up with sundry, many different arguments to justify divorce when it's not actually justified. And we work really hard to rationalize a divorce that's not biblically rational, and they, they grant that that's true. It says, yet, nothing but adultery or such willful desertion as can no way be remedied by the church or civil magistrate is cause sufficient of dissolving the bond of marriage... Wherein a now listen to this, wherein a public and orderly course of proceeding is to be observed, and this part I thought was very wise, and the persons concerned in it are not to be left 
to their own wills and discretion in their own cases. In other words, because we are so biased by our sin and our rationalizations within a marital situation where there's trouble, we need the local church around us in those difficult moments to help us see more clearly what is going on. That's why churches have elders, because sometimes it's not as textbook cut and dry exactly what's happening here. And so we need, hopefully, godly wise elders in whatever church you are a part of who can come alongside you in that moment and hear out both sides of a situation and make a careful investigation. But it says people should not be left to their own discretion in these matters. They need to lay it out before wise and godly elders who can help in those, in those matters. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I want to spend a little time here on divorce and remarriage are permitted when a believing spouse is deserted by an unbelieving spouse. Touched on it last week. Let's start here in verse 10. And before I read it, I, I think I have to say this every time I ever read these verses in public. When Paul says, uh, the, um, when he says, not I but the Lord, he's referring to something Jesus said in his earthly ministry. The Lord is Jesus in his earthly ministry. When he says, I not the Lord, he doesn't mean he's contradicting God. He means this is not a matter Jesus addressed explicitly during his earthly ministry. And so I, by the Spirit, am going to shed some extra light on it. So we'll start in verses 8 and 9. This is referring, excuse me, verses, 9, um, verses 10 and 11. To, these, are, these are people who profess faith in Christ who are married. Verse 10, to the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. Now, right off the bat, there's confusion here. Look at verse 10. When it says the wife should not separate from her husband, a lot of times we read this as talking about separation without divorce. In today's culture, we can talk about separating but not divorcing. That is not what Paul is talking about here. That word separation is the same word Jesus used when he said, what God has joined together, let not man separate. It's a word for divorce. And uh, it, you know it's divorce because it says what? Look at verse 10 again. To the married, I give this charge, not either but the Lord, the wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried, which means this separation is divorce. And so uh, he says a wife should not divorce her husband, and a husband should not divorce his wife. But look at verse 11. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. So this is hard to know for sure, but very possibly, we know, we know this, some of the Corinthians were thinking it's better for a husband and wife, it's better for people not to have sexual relationships at all, and it may even be more holy to be single. And so based on the first verses of this chapter, it's, it's very possible, this may sound unusual, it is unusual, it, it, it may be possible that some in the Corinthian church were saying, marriage is kind of tolerable, and you know, the sexual relationship is tolerable, but singleness is way up here. Singleness is the real deal. And so, some of these false teachings were in the church. It is at least possible that some Corinthian Christians in the church thought, well, it is more godly to be single than to be married because you can be fully devoted to the Lord in ministry and you don't have to worry about all the domestic duties of, of a husband and wife and child rearing. And so, it is possible some spouses trying to do what they thought was right and holy sought divorce from their spouses in the church 
in order to try to live a more holy and devout life as single people. And you say, wow, I've never heard of that. Well, that, that seems like that's possible here. And here's what Paul says. Listen, you should not do that. Wives should not unlawfully divorce their husbands. Husbands should not unlawfully divorce their wives. But if you find yourself in a situation where there has been a divorce and it has not been a lawful divorce, what does he say? Don't remarry. Look at it again, verse 11. But if she does, that is, seek an unlawful divorce, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. So if these husbands and wives had broken up and thought the single life was superior, more honoring to God, which you wasn't in this way. If they had sought a divorce and gotten a divorce, Paul says, listen, you've got two options right now. You need to, first of all, seek to reconcile this relationship. You guys need to get remarried. You need to get back together. But if that's impossible for some reason or other, then you have to remain unmarried. If you've been separated unlawfully, you must remain unmarried. You should not marry anyone else because to do so would, as the Lord said, be a form of adultery. Now, verse 12, to the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. Now, just pause here. Why he says, it's me speaking, not the Lord, the reason he says that is because Jesus never addressed a marriage where there was a believer and an unbeliever in the same marriage. Because when Jesus was speaking, everyone he was talking to was Jewish, and they were all married to people within the covenant community of Judaism. So there was no such, he wasn't talking to Jews married to Gentiles. That's not what he was talking to. He was talking to Jews married to Jews. So he was just talking about that. But now in the post Pentecost era, you have people who get married, one of them converts, one of them doesn't. Now you have a believer and an unbeliever. Should they break up? Now let me, let me say something again. I haven't mentioned this before, and I, we, don't, we don't have time to go there. But if you go read Ezra chapter 10, the last chapter of Ezra, the, the, the verses 2 to 12 of Ezra 10, you have a case that you have uh, Israelites married to Gentile foreigners who are worshiping idols, and Ezra says, you guys need to separate from your wives and send them back home with the children, and we should not be maintaining these ungodly marriages. Pretty amazing passage. Okay, if you haven't read it before, go check it out. Now, a couple things I got to say here. Number one, it's not perfectly clear that these couples were for sure married because the word for married and the word for divorce is an unusual term in Hebrew. So it's possible they were not actually married. They were just living together. It's not perfectly clear. But here's what we know. Ezra acts very strongly to bring separation between the believer and the unbeliever in Ezra chapter 10, which is kind of shocking. And if these Corinthians knew about that passage in Ezra, they may have said, hey, if I'm married to a non-Christian now, I should do what Ezra 10 said, I should send my unbelieving spouse away. And I'll just say here, we do not in any way mock or discount the Old Testament. It is God's inspired word. But we are not in the old covenant situation that Ezra finds himself in at the time of Nehemiah. Let me just say one word here about that. People have come back from exile. They're beginning to rebuild Jerusalem. And intermarriage threatens the very nature and essence of the people of God, preserving the line of Christ, preserving the basic issue here. That was being threatened by marrying idolaters and foreigners. And so it was a different situation. And Paul says, today, it doesn't work that way. With Christians, we remain married to unbelievers as long as they consent to live with us. Look at verse 13 of 1 Corinthians 7. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children will be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Now, this is getting really far afield here. Uh, just want to say quickly, this is not talking about automatic salvation of your children or of your unbelieving spouse because they're married to a Christian. 
It's also, I don't think, endorsing infant baptism, the children being holy because of a believing parent. I think this is simply describing that the, uh, the, the child or the unbelieving spouse are living in a house with a Christian. God's presence is right there in the home with them. So they are, in a sense, holy or set apart by the believer being present with them. I don't think it's supporting baptizing the infant any more than baptizing the unbelieving spouse, right? They're all made holy by the believer being present. I think what it's saying here is what? I think it's saying it's a tremendous blessing to the unbelieving children and an unbelieving spouse to be in the home with a Christian and getting to see right in front of them a spouse living out their Christian life consistently. 1 Peter 3, if a woman is married to an unbelieving husband, she should win him not mainly by speaking at him, although she can, of course, speak to him about the gospel, but not mainly trying to hit him over the head with the gospel. She should win her husband without a word, by her conduct, by her quiet and submissive spirit, which is of great value and worth in God's sight, and he will be one to Christ by her conduct. So this is the idea of being put in that realm with a believer. Look at verse 15. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Just real briefly, look at the last, very end of this chapter, back to verse 39, at the end of the chapter. I believe when it says that that you were not enslaved in such cases, when the unbeliever wants to leave, I believe that means not only can you be divorced from that spouse, but that you can remarry. And I argue that from verse 39. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free. I think that means not enslaved. To what? To be married to whom she wishes. Only in the Lord. And I also mentioned last week how I believe a serious physical violence, physical threatening of life, uh, attempted murder, those kinds of things also could be a kind of desertion that could also eventually uh, justify uh, a marriage as well for desertion. All right, let me move in here to uh, the next point. Divorce and remarriage are permitted but not required for sexual immorality. Turn with me to Proverbs chapter 6. Proverbs chapter 6. I'm going to read an extended portion here of these two chapters, Proverbs 6 and 7. And please follow along with me. Proverbs chapter 6. And I will start in verse 23. Proverbs 6, verse 23. My son, excuse me, for the commandment is a lamp and the teaching a light, and the reproofs of discipline are the way of life to preserve you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Do not desire her beauty in your heart, and do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. For the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread, but a married man hunts down a precious life. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his appetite when he is hungry." But if he is caught, he will pay sevenfold. He will give all the goods of his house. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor, and his disgrace will not be wiped away. For jealousy makes a man furious, and he will not spare when he takes revenge. He will accept no compensation. He will refuse, though you multiply gifts. Chapter 7, verse 6. For at the window of my house I have looked out through my lattice, 
And I have seen among the simple, I have perceived among the youths a man lacking sense. Now, pause there. Lacking sense and being simple or foolish is not about your IQ in the book of Proverbs. Simple and foolish can be the smartest person you know, could be simple and foolish. It means lacking moral guidance and careful discretion in moral thinking. What does this simple person do? Verse 8, passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house in the twilight, in the evening at the time of night and darkness, and behold, the woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay home. Now in the street, now in the market, and at every corner she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him. And with bold face she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I have paid my vows. So now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. I have spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. For my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. At full moon, he will come home. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her. As an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver, as a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. And now, O sons, listen to me, and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways, and do not stray into her paths, for many a victim has she laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. Jesus could not be more clear. Scripture could not be more clear. The dangers involved in this kind of sin, and we must be on guard. Turn with me back to Matthew 5. Let me reread verses 31 and 32. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery." And do you remember last week in Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, it says if a man finds something indecent in his wife and he writes her a certificate of divorce and sends her away and it speaks about that. Remember the, the, the Jews were using that verse, which is kind of halfway quoted here, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. They're quoting Deuteronomy 24, 1, but they're actually misusing the verse, remember? They were using it to justify any fault, divorce, right? If she, did, if she wasn't as beautiful as the next woman, I could divorce her. If she didn't cook the right dinner, I could divorce her. And then there was a list of about 40 or 50 reasons that a husband could divorce his wife in the, in the way most Jewish people at the time uh, thought that. And Jesus is not rebuking Scripture here. He's rebuking the misinterpretation and misuse of that passage. And then he says, look at the end of verse 32, He says, whoever divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual morality makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. How does a man divorcing his wife without biblical cause make her an adulteress? How does he make her commit adultery? And the answer is, 
Well, in that culture, the pressure, especially for a woman who was divorced, the pressure for her to remarry for economic and many other reasons was extremely strong. And so, virtually 10 out of 10 times, a woman in this situation would feel forced to remarry. She would, she would seek remarriage. And when that happens is what Jesus says. The husband has really put her in a position where she is going to very likely commit the sin of adultery in that following marriage. Now, I'm coming closer to the end here today, but there's several things I'd like to discuss. Number one, what exactly does Jesus mean by sexual immorality? I haven't been as clear on that as I would like to try to be here. What exactly does the word porneia in Greek, what exactly is porneia, sexual immorality, referring to? Well, again, that word can refer to all kinds of different sexual sins, so what exactly is it referring to? There's a guy named Jim Neuheiser who wrote a book on marriage and divorce and remarriage. It's a pretty good book, and he said this. True story from marriage counseling. A wife once told me, I saw my husband look with lust. That's adultery. Jesus said, look with lust, it's adultery of the heart. So a wife saw her husband look with lust, that's adultery, I want to divorce him. And Neuheiser responded, yes, but you also yelled at him, so that's murder, so you should receive capital punishment. Is that how this is going to work here? No, we don't treat the inner thought. Jesus is not by any way, any way making hatred a small deal. It's murder of the heart. He's not making lust a small deal. It could send you to hell if you don't repent of it. It's not making a small deal. But we don't treat the inward uh, sin the same way as we treat the outward expression of these sins. Okay, so that's very important. He says here, um, just like we wouldn't treat anger with capital punishment, we would not treat lust with grounds for divorce. And so what about emotional adultery? You hear a story about maybe a, a woman who, you know, she gets in contact as an adult with a high school boyfriend online, and they're talking, and they get into an emotional kind of affair, adultery, and they may even meet up and they talk, but they never actually uh, go further than that, and they get found out, and she confesses this to her husband, and her husband, uh, you know, hopefully he forgives her for that, but I would not say that that is grounds for divorce. I think it's a horrific thing that happened. I think it's awful. I think it is sinful. I think it is damaging to the relationship. I think it's going to take months, if not years, to repair and to work that back together. But I don't think that that emotional uh, adultery is grounds for divorce. I don't don't think that's that's what Jesus is referring to there, and I don't know a lot of people who would. Now, today with the internet, you've got pornography all over the place, accessible all over the place. It's a pandemic. It's a massive issue today. Is pornography use grounds for divorce? Well, I, I wanted to really be careful as I answer this. So I looked up about everybody I could find on this topic just to see what what does everybody say? I looked at as many people as I could access on this, and the general answer was basically the same across the spectrum of people that I respect on this issue. Are you ready? So uh, what about pornography use? Is that grounds for divorce? Is that porneia, sexual immorality? Virtually everyone I looked at said the same thing. Generally speaking, probably not. No. But could there come a point where a, a, a husband say, or it could be a wife, but a husband is completely given over to pornography? absolutely not going to repent of it, not going to fight it, just given over to pornography and just living in it, then virtually Tom Schreiner, Don Carson, Jim Neuheiser, a whole bunch of people basically come out on the same page saying it could become at a certain extent serious enough that it could actually become grounds for divorce. But generally speaking, probably not going to be something we would consider grounds for divorce. Again, the Bible doesn't say precisely where the line is, where it becomes what Jesus says is grounds and where it doesn't. This is why we need hopefully godly elders and godly people around us who can help counsel us and help discern in difficult issues. Just, just as a side point, I've only been a pastor about seven years, so other people have far, far more experience than I do. But let me just say, just even from my limited experience, 
Every situation is far more thorny and difficult and more difficult to untangle than, than any other. And so as you look at each particular issue, you've got to use wisdom. You've got to pray. You've got to observe carefully and see what is going on. But generally speaking, uh, uh, what we're looking for is a sign of repentance or not repentance when it comes to those kinds of issues. Now, let me make, make a few final application points here. What about for single people, dating people, engaged couples in the room, singles who would like to get married, people who are dating, people who are engaged? What, what, what are we, how are we to think about some of these things? Just some broad points here. This won't be anything shocking probably. First thing, just to say a word about dating, and this is not popular to say in our culture, I know, but I believe it is true. Dating is not talked about in the Bible. Betrothal is, engagement certainly is, but not dating per se. But I'm not opposed to dating as a category. I would just say this. The purpose of dating is marriage. In our culture, the purpose of dating is usually dating. That's not biblical. You're setting yourself up for all kinds of temptations and failures, oftentimes at a very early age, and you're also doing what Vodi Bauckham said, which I think this statement is piercing and true. Vodi said, much of modern American dating is nothing more than glorified divorce practice. Because you get the initial fix of emotion from those first few months of the relationship in seventh grade, and then you work through that relationship for five, six months, and you break up. And then what? You find the other girlfriend or boyfriend, and you, you kind of go on that emotional fix for a few months, and then you do that all through middle school, you do it all through high school, you do it all through college, and now you've had 15 years of training yourself to get divorced. You, you, you get the, affix, the emotional fix early on, it wears off, you don't stick with it, you move on to someone else. Much of modern American dating is nothing more than glorified divorce practice. Here's what I would say. If you're nowhere anywhere close to being ready to be married, what are you doing in a serious so-called dating relationship? If you're not anywhere close to being ready to be married, the purpose of dating is to see if we could be compatible in some form or fashion for a marriage. The moment you're dating someone and you realize we could never work as a married couple, then you hit the eject button. You get out of that relationship as soon as possible. If you know this is not going to be a wise marriage, then you should not be dating that person, period. There's no reason for that. You're just setting yourself up for unnecessary temptations. The purpose of dating is marriage. If I'm nowhere close to be ready for marriage, then why would I make myself emotionally intimate and open to this other person and maybe even risk crossing physical barriers and lines for the sake of just dating? We've got to be different than the culture in how we think about these things. Now, let me say to the dating and even the engaged couples in the room, when you are dating, you are, again, you're asking that question, is this the kind of woman I would want to be married to and I would want raising my children? Is this the kind of man I would want to be my husband and raising my children? Is this, do we have the basic framework of God's Word? Do we have the same basic view of Scripture, the same basic view of gospel and Christ, the same basic view of church? How are we going to educate our children? How, how are we going to do this, that, and the other? We need to be asking those questions in those dating relationships to get to know where this is going. And, and if you realize, wow, this person is absolutely determined to have no children, and I'd like to have five or six children, well, then you need to be talking through that early on and not waiting until it's too late to try to make these decisions. Or if there's serious theological differences, you believe in unconditional election and she doesn't, or you, you believe in uh, you know, this or that, and there's differences, that needs to be worked through uh, as soon as possible to see if there's a way we can work forward in this. And as soon as we know that there are red flags or warning flags, we, we need to think seriously about, about uh, discontinuing that relationship. What about engaged couples? Engagement uh, is, again, a biblical concept. Let me just say, as a general piece of wisdom, and I'm not the first person to say this, Long engagements are generally unwise. 
You may say, well, I want to plan the perfect wedding. I need a year. I need a year and a half. I need two years to make this thing be all that I want it to be. And Vodibaka would say, well, your, your, marriage, you know, your marriage may be waiting for that, but lust is not waiting. And if the commitment is already there and she's already got the ring on her finger, it's going to be all the more difficult to refrain from temptation in that moment. And so why put yourself through two years of an engagement period when it is just asking for trouble? Now, I know there are extraneous situations where he's overseas with the army and you can't see each other for the next eight months. I understand that. I'm not talking about those kinds of situations. But we need to be on guard against lust and temptation. Listen, even if we are engaged to someone, we are still technically single by biblical definition. We're not married, right? You're either married or you're not married, biblically. And so you say, well, we're already committed. She's got the ring. We're getting married in three months. Yes, that's wonderful. But all the more reason to guard things physically in, in, those, in those particular months. So I recommend, and lots of people recommend, shorter rather than unnecessarily long engagements for the sake of dealing with temptation in that way. Last thing I'll say. One of the reasons I do believe that adultery is so horrific when it comes out, when the information, when, when, you know, I've, I've been close to a couple when it comes out, adultery's happening. And to be around the, the spouse that was cheated on, to see the fallout of that, it's absolutely, I mean, many people have said it's worse than the, than the death of my spouse. It's way worse than if my spouse had died, come, what, what came out. And I'll just say, why is it so awful? One theological reason is because God wants to give us a glimpse of how horrifying our sin, our idolatry, and our unfaithfulness to Him actually is. Why is it in Ezekiel and Hosea and the prophets, Jeremiah 2, 3, 4, 5, those chapters, that God speaks of our sin as adultery? Why is it in James 4, he speaks of adulteresses, friendship with the world is enmity towards God. God yearns jealously over the spirit that he's caused to dwell within us. He, he's a jealous husband who wants affection for him, not for false gods. Why? Why is it so painful? God is showing us the horror and the nature of what sin is. It is unfaithfulness to our heavenly father. It is spiritual adultery against the bridegroom, Christ himself. It is a horror sin is, and yet God has made a way for sinners to be made right with Him. In Sunday school, we just read this verse an hour ago. Isaiah says, as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so will the Lord rejoice over you. Despite all our failings, all of our spiritual adulteries, all of our ups and downs and fits and starts and two steps forward and one step back in our spiritual life, despite all our failure, Christ takes all of it on the cross. He drinks the cup of wrath dry. He ascends into heaven, triumphant over all of our sin. And Christ looks at us and says, I still see you clothed in white, and I still rejoice over you, my people, like a bridegroom rejoices over his bride. Let us have hope in the truth of the gospel despite any failures that we've had in our past. And let us repent of whatever we've done wrong, and let us make the best of whatever we have in front of us uh, by God's grace and for his glory. Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, I am as aware of, as anybody in here that I have not answered a thousand questions that could be raised right now about all kinds of difficult scenarios, and I probably don't have the answer to a, a lot of those questions. But God, we do thank you for your word that does give us clarity. It gives us clarity on these basic and essential things. God, I thank you that 
uh, in our church who have worked so many new marriages and families. So many wonderful young children have been born just in the last seven years here at our church. And God, we are so thankful. I pray for those children, that God, that you would help us as parents to raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, that we would be faithful to discipline them, that we'd be faithful to read Scripture to them and Bible stories to them and to pray with them and to confess sin to them. And I pray that you would lead our children savingly to Christ. And God, I pray for marriages that may be in difficult times, that you would bring healing and restoration, reconciliation where it seems difficult, that you would be at work in a mighty way, showing off your power and your grace and your glory. God, for those who have failed in the past, sinful decisions have been made that can't quite be undone. God, I pray for just a fresh sense of your forgiveness, a fresh repentance, and that there would not be a despair, a paralyzing guilt, but that there would be a fresh hope in the gospel as we forget what is behind and press on toward what's ahead. God, I pray for dating couples, that you give them wisdom and help them to be guarded in the way that they act. Pray for engaged couples that you'd watch over them and prepare them for that day of marriage that is on the horizon and coming soon. God, I pray that you'd keep all of us faithful to you, you forgive us of our unfaithfulness to you, and that you'd show us what a true bridegroom is truly like. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.